Let's dive into our last installment of our Christmas classic series. And today, if you're new to Catalyst, we've been looking at uh, Christmas classics, movies, and pulling out redemptive scriptural truths that are found in these movies. And if you wonder, you know, why are we, we preaching around movies? Because one of our, our, our kind of internal values of church is we, we believe that church should be enjoyed and not endured. Can I get an amen? So we're having some fun. Uh, but as always, we're going to ground everything in the Word of God. But we're having some fun while we do it. And today's uh, movie is one of my favorites. And uh, it's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Uh, the Jim Carrey version. Uh, in fact, my, my four-year-old, for the past two years, since she was two, uh, she, this has been her favorite movie. We don't know why. Uh, you would think a two-year-old, when she was two years old, you would be frightened by a human Grinch. But in fact, when she was younger, she would often say, Daddy, I want to watch the real Grinch. Come on. She's like, don't give me no cartoon. Give me the real one. So this week when I was preparing... Uh, I wanted to re-watch the movie, and guess who I chose to watch it with me? Come on, somebody. My cuddle partner was Abigail Burroughs, and uh, we enjoyed that movie. Uh, she's probably seen it 3,000 times. Um, but uh, but there's, there's many redemptive truths in that movie. We could do a whole series on The Grinch alone. But I want to talk today, in fact, I've entitled today's message, The Grinch Who Steals Christmas, because there's a Grinch uh, in all of our lives, who can steal the joy from our life. In fact, we see it in this movie. And that's the Grinch of offense. Uh, in this movie, the Grinch, how he came about, was offense. He was offended as a young child, and he, he became what we know as the Grinch. And the people of Whoville are offended at the Grinch, which created the conflict and tension. Luke 17, 1, to give you some scripture, Jesus said this, that offenses will come. But watch this. Jesus says, woe to those for whom they come. Offenses will come. Uh, you probably have faced an offense this year, maybe this month, maybe this past week. Somebody cut you off on the beltway. Somebody was rude to you at the coffee shop. Uh, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a friend or, or a coworker said something hurtful to you. Uh, maybe someone who you thought should have been there for you weren't there for you. The reality is there's many opportunities to be offended. Here's the truth is that offense, offenses will come. But I want you to write this down. Being offended is a choice. Offenses come, but offended is a choice. Let me also say this. I think it's, it's, it's near impossible to overcome offenses without the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and here's why, because naturally speaking, it is hard to navigate life and to deal with hurts and wrongs and offenses. But the reason that we can with the power of the Holy Spirit is because Jesus, he took upon our offense, our sin, through his broken body and shed blood. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, because of that, God made peace with us. If you're grateful for that, can you say Amen. So because of that, we can overcome offense. We can overcome offense. John Bevere wrote a great book. He's a Christian author. I'd recommend you read it. It's called The Bait of Satan. And it's all about offense, and it calls offense the bait of Satan. And he says this, our response to an offense determines our future. How we respond to offenses, because they're going to come. So we're going to talk today about how can we 
not allow the Grinch of offense steal our Christmas. Or as the prophet Calvin Brodus, a.k.a. Snoop Dogg said, how do we drop it like it's hot? Not drop that, drop offense like it's hot. That's what he actually originally meant. He was talking about offense in that song, if, you, if you've heard of it. We'll move on. We're going to read the Bible in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for joy and laughter. God, we thank you for your word. It is holy. It is inspired. It is life-changing. Uh, we ask, Holy Spirit, you come and speak to us this morning, God. And uh, we just say we're heart, our hearts and our minds and our spirits are open and receptive to what you have for us in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. We're going to look at, uh, before we kind of dive into our main passage, I want to share a scripture with you of why it's so important that we deal with offense in our life. Proverbs 18, 19 says this, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city. Uh, that means that once you become offended, it's hard to become unoffended. Uh, I would submit to you as well that oftentimes when we are offended, I've been there, uh, and when that I've noticed this in my own life and also in just pastoring people, but oftentimes when we're offended, we may not always realize that we are offended. In fact, sometimes offense can become so normative that we learn to just live offended. What's intriguing, Pew Research did a study in 2019, surveyed thousands of Americans, and they found that 65% of Americans believe that right now today we live in a culture that is too easily offended. Uh, that offense we see wherever we turn, social media, the news, all around us, offense is in abundance. Now listen, since the beginning of time, the Bible's clear, offenses will come. So offenses are nothing new. But here's why it's so important we learn to how to overcome offense. We learn how to not allow the, gre the, the grinch of offense to steal our joy. Because the University of Pennsylvania did this research in 2017. Here's what they found. That holding on to an offense or a grudge or having unforgiveness in your heart is associated with increases of anxiety and depression, elevated blood pressure, vascular resistance, and worse outcomes for coronary artery disease. Uh, how many of you know uh, it, it is not God's will for you to live offended? Can I get an amen? But it's hard, it's difficult. It's not easy. I know today it is much easier for me to teach this than to live it. Uh, but I know with the power of the Holy Spirit we can. In fact, a, a relationship in Scripture that we see where there was uh, many opportunities for offense is the relationship between David and King Saul. Uh, David, if you're familiar, David uh, became King David. He was shepherd boy David. David who defeated Goliath. Uh, in fact, there's, there's the only person who has more Scripture written about him is Jesus. So David's a pretty important character in the narrative of our faith. Not only that, but Jesus came from the Davidic line. So David's an important person for us to study. And he was anointed in 1 Samuel 16 to be the next king of Israel. And Saul, seeing that and seeing the success and the fact that the Lord's hand was on David, he made it his pursuit to kill David. So we're going to look, kind of look several passages of their relationship. And we're going to start in 1 Samuel 24. And to give context, Saul was, was with his army going after David to kill David. How many of you know David would have had a good reason to be offended? Come on, somebody. If someone's trying to kill you with their whole army. But David 
in this moment, he, he resolved in his heart to do things the right way. And 1 Samuel 24, David's hiding out in a cave. And Saul comes into the cave, the Bible says, to relieve himself. And to know about the law of Moses is this. If you were to go relieve yourself, you were to go in there without your weapons and away from your camp. So no other soldiers. So King Saul is completely vulnerable. No soldiers guarding him, no weapons to protect him. And here's what the Bible says. He, referring to Saul, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went to relieve himself, and David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David then crept up unnoticed, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my master. I want you to watch this. He says, the Lord's anointed, or lay a hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. David, in that moment, saw Saul, not as an offender, but he saw Saul as the Lord's anointed. Now, again, Saul was trying to kill him, and he calls him his master, The Lord's anointed. Here's why. Because David knew that the Lord had anointed Saul to be king for that time. And David was his his friends, who probably meant well, when some way trying to rush the will of God. Always be careful if you find yourself tempted to try to speed up the will of God. God's will is perfect and his timing is perfect. Can I get an amen? And David, in this moment, his friends are, are trying to encourage him. But what he says, David saw Saul as God saw Saul. The Lord's anointed. Let's go to the Grinch real quick. Like that transition? Come on. David, the Grinch. There's a moment in the Grinch. This is towards the end of the movie. Ah, second half of the movie. And by this point, if you haven't seen the movie or read the story, uh, the Grinch is stealing the Christmas presents and decor of the Who people. And uh, by this point, you know, the Grinch had been known as this terrible character, done many bad things throughout his life, and... Now he's doing the pinnacle, right? He's stealing what he thought was Christmas, but it was all the decor and the presents. And he has this brief exchange with a young girl named Cindy Lou Who. Let's go ahead and watch this brief clip, uh, then we'll come back and move on with point one. She acknowledged he was mean and hairy and cold hands. But she said, but I think he's also kind of sweet. And you can even see almost the the inner turmoil that the Grinch had in that moment. What did she do? She saw the best in him. And how many of you know that 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 was a feat with the Grinch? Come on. And can I tell you, in the same way, listen, David saw Saul, saw the best in Saul, the Lord's anointed as God saw him. Cindy Lou who saw the best in the Grinch, even through all of the the negative. Which brings us to our first point. I think if we're going to... Not allow the Grinch of offense to steal our Christmas, or steal our joy, rather, and our Christmas. We must see people as God sees them. We must see them as God sees them. It's important that we understand how to accurately see people. Uh, In fact, I I was thinking about uh, when Christina and I first got married, there was one time she was driving um, on the road, and it was at night. And it was raining, 
uh, and Christina wears contacts. And, and the, uh, she told me while she was driving at night, she says, when it's raining at night, the headlights make everything blurry. And I said, why don't you go ahead and pull over the car right now? And out of service to my wife, I will drive the rest of the way home. <laughs> Thank God her prescription's been upgraded. Come on, somebody. If that's you, please upgrade your prescription for the sake of all of us on the road. But can I tell you, in the same way, listen, the rain and the night cause the blurring of her vision. Listen, offense will distort your perspective of people. Because you will start seeing people through the lens of your offense. And may I submit a truth that, that's hard to live out, but it's still true. Is that the reason that we are not called to see people as their offense is because when God sees you, he doesn't hold your offense over your head. He doesn't see you as your sin. He sees you because of Christ Jesus, because of our faith in him. He sees us as the righteousness of Christ. So as a follower of Jesus, we are called not to see people as their offense, but to see people as God sees them. In fact, Romans 12, too, I love what the Apostle Paul says. This is the, the New Living Translation. He says this, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. I would even say changing the way you see. I remember some years ago I was offended at someone, and uh, they had done some things that were wrong to me, and uh, I was holding on to some offense. I remember talking with Christina about that one evening, and she, said to, she asked me, she says, well, have you asked God for his perspective on the situation and the person. I was like, I don't need to ask God. I know how I feel. Come on, somebody. <laughs> I didn't want to. Because how many of you know, sometimes you, you feel justified in your frustration. Anybody, can we just be real here? Like sometimes you feel justified in your anger. So I asked God. And you know what God reminded me of? A truth for every person. I said, God, how do you see this person? I know how I see him. And he said, Jeremy, I see him as my son. And can I tell you, regardless of who it is, Genesis 127 reminds us we were all made in the image of God. So regardless of what they've done to you, they have been made in the very image of God. You may see them as an offender. God sees them as his image bearer. And can I tell you, listen, I want you to grab hold of this. It did not make what he did wrong right. It did not make what he did hurtful any less painful. But what it did was make me more sensitive to God and to him. And can I tell you, it's so important, church, that we understand this. And also hear this throughout this message. I'm not, I'm not saying in this message. This message is geared towards how do we protect our hearts. Because the reality is this. I'm not saying that if you're in an unhealthy situation, stay. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying you don't deal with somebody who's wronged you. But what I'm saying is protect your heart in the process. And it begins with seeing people as God sees them. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul wrote this in verse 5. He says, love keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful. And endures through every circumstance. Love 
keeps no record of being wronged. As a follower of Christ, we are called to love others unconditionally as God has loved us. And love does not keep hold a grudge against people. Keep a record of wrong against people. Hold what somebody did against people. Love also, watch this, the Bible says, is always hopeful. It believes the best about people. Remember I heard a pastor some years ago say this, always stuck with me. He said, he said when, when someone cuts me off on the interstate, how many of you know the 495 is the beltway of offense? Come on, somebody. You just got to drive on that for like 15 minutes. You have four opportunities to be offended. Come on. And, uh, but <laughs> he said, when someone cuts me off on the interstate, when someone zooms by me, I assume they are on the way to the hospital to see a loved one. He said, I'm probably wrong 98% of the time. He said, but it prevents me from becoming offended. Can I tell you? Sometimes it's better for you to be wrong so that your heart can be healthy. It's not about you being right. It's about you keeping yourself from falling into sin because to be offended is to be in sin, which leads to destruction. So may I submit to you when you have someone cut you off this afternoon, come on, assume they're going to the hospital to see a loved one. If someone's rude to you today out at a restaurant, or a coffee shop, assume they just heard some bad news. If you find out someone's talking behind your back or someone has said a hurtful comment at work, assume they're having a challenging season. Again, I'm not saying you don't address the wrongdoing. What I'm saying is protecting your heart in the moment and always being hopeful, always believing the best. The passage in 1 Samuel 24, verse 12, David has an exchange with Saul where he basically says, Saul... I had an opportunity to, to kill you, and I chose not to. And then he says this to Saul. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. Do you know what love does? Love lets God into the situation to be God. You know, in that clip, when she said, what's Christmas all about? What was the Grinch's first response? Vengeance. What was he doing? He was allowing his events to now seek vengeance. Come on, have you ever wanted to seek vengeance because you were offended? <laughs> a little side note. Here's how you know you might be offended. When you have a hard time celebrating someone's success and you take a little joy in someone's peril. Don't look at me all holy, all religious. You know you've been there. Right? That's how you might know you're offended. You're seeking vengeance. You're seeking revenge. The Bible says this. The Lord says this. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. So here's what love does. Love, love lets God be God. It reminded me recently, uh, one of the common things I have to do in the Burroughs household is to, uh, to be a mediator in sibling rivalry. Any parents can relate. And, uh, in fact, I had one this morning. Uh, you always, I told you before, pray for your pastor on Sunday morning because I'm fighting battles at 7 a.m. Uh, with, with children. Um, and uh, the other day, my two oldest, there was one of my children. They had damaged the toy of another. 
And I'm telling you, you thought like the world ended for one of the children. You know, it was like they broke my toy. So the other child, true story, went over to the bookshelf, took their sibling's book off the shelf, and went to tear it apart. I say, whoa, 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 whoa. Come on. That's my money that bought those books. Come on, somebody. <laughs> and uh, so I stopped her and I, I stopped her and I said, hey, listen, listen, listen. Let dad handle it. Dad has more authority to enact real justice in this situation. Can you hear me? Can I tell you, our father has got more authority to enact justice in a situation. Again, I'm not saying you don't address wrongs. What I'm saying is let God be God. You know, in the movie, Cindy Lou Who saw the best in the Grinch. One of the things I love about her character, if you watch the movie, is, is she, a lot of the Who's in Whoville took the Grinch's offenses personal. Like throughout the movie, they're all like caught up and frustrated and upset with the Grinch. And how dare he? How could he? But this Cindy Lou Who, she did some back research. She talked to people who grew up with the Grinch. And she heard stories about how the Grinch was bullied, how the Grinch was offended. How many of you know, be careful, because when you become offended, you can easily become the offender. That was the Grinch. He was offended because he was bullied as a child. So she heard all of these stories. So Cindy Lou Who, when the Grinch came face to face with her, and there's a couple of clips where he's like mocking her and barking her and trying to scare her, she laughs at him. <laughs> Why? Because she learned that the Grinch's behavior, that he's reacting out of his own offense, has nothing to do with her. Which brings you to point number two. This, this is, again, this is a harder truth to embrace, but, but I, I want to encourage you to lean into it. Is don't take offense personal. In fact, I, I know you don't need this, but go ahead and tell your neighbor. Don't take it personal. Your neighbor might need it. Don't take offense personal. David in 1 Samuel 18. So David, many of you know the story of David and Goliath. He defeats Goliath. Pretty awesome story. He comes back into town. And they're singing this. Next thing you know, he's trending on Twitter. Like he's blowing up on TikTok, 3 million followers overnight. And he's coming back. They're like, you know, they wrote a song about him, number one on Spotify. And it goes like this. Saul had slain his thousands, but David had slain his tens of thousands. So he's coming in, right? And, and they're, they're, they're praising David. So Saul begins to become envious. Always guard your heart against envy. The Bible says this, that envy rottens your bones. Envy is destructive. Jealousy is destructive. Saul was incredibly insecure. Because here he is, right? He had turned away from God. God's presence had left him. And here he sees David having all the success. What's intriguing about Saul's envy was David had success under the leadership of Saul's army. Come on, you know you're insecure as a leader when you feel threatened by the people that you're leading. <laughs> and can I say this? Insecurity will always be threatened by your success. Always. Go back a few weeks ago and talked about the comparison. 
Comparison's dangerous. Saul was envious. And what we see in David's life, we see in Cindy Lou Who, David never took offense. He never sought vengeance. Twice he had an opportunity to kill Saul, easily. One was in the cave while he was relieving himself. Another time while Saul was sleeping, he didn't do it. Why? Because he saw him as God saw him. But he didn't take it personal. He knew Saul's anger was not about David. It was much deeper. And can I tell you, oftentimes, those who are offending, it's much deeper than you. It's much bigger than you. In fact, 1 Samuel 18, the Bible says this, that Saul, he had a spear in his hand, and he threw it. The Bible says this. He says he hurled it, and he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David. Watch this. But had departed Saul. He was angry because the Lord had left him. May I even submit, perhaps Saul was offended at God. Maybe even some of you have been there. You've been, you've been angry with God for what has happened or has not happened. That's where Saul was. You know, 1 Peter 3, I love this. Peter writes to the church. He says, sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted. Keep a humble attitude. That word sympathize literally means to feel as the other person feels. To put yourself into their shoes. He says, and then be tender-hearted. This is what I have found personally. The more sympathetic I become of someone, the more tender I become with that person. And this is, this is a hard practice of what I'm going to challenge you with today, right now. But I'm telling you, it can help begin your process of healing from an offense. It's to sympathize, to put yourself in the shoes of your offender. Now, oftentimes, you may not know enough details to do so. But here's what I found personally in all my years, personally and also in pastoring. Usually those who offend us the most are usually those closest to us. Because usually it's those we love the most can cause us the most joy and pain. Have you noticed that? Like rarely are you holding on to offense for 20 years from a barista who is rude to you. Come on, somebody. I don't know her name, but 17 years ago said no one, right? What do you hear stories of? My mom, my dad who walked out on me, that boss of seven years who mistreated me, that person that I grew up with who wronged me, right? So usually those who offend us the most are the closest to us. And here's a practice I would, I would encourage you to do. Through conversation with my, my counselor, uh, I kind of took a moment some years ago and did this is I put myself in the shoes of someone I was offended with. And as I, I knew some details of their life, and what I knew was they grew up in, in an abusive environment. And they had experienced some significant traumas in their life. And as I began to feel as they feel, as I began to put myself in their shoes, again, it did not make what they did wrong right. It did not, all of a sudden, everything was fine. But what it did was, is it made me more tender towards the person. And can I tell you, as a parent myself, I know my kids aren't perfect, but I want people to be tender with my kids. And I believe our Father in Heaven, 
He wants us to be tender with his children. Can I get an amen? And when you, when you feel as the other person feels, let me say one other caveat. Because sometimes we can do this. When we put ourselves in their shoes, we can then brush what they did wrong under the rug. Oh, you know what? It wasn't that big of a deal that my mom wasn't there. It wasn't that big of a deal what my brother did to me. Because, you know, look at his situation. I had a mentor tell me years ago, he said, Jeremy, unless you fully appropriate the blame, you can never fully forgive. So don't brush it under the rug like it never happened. It's okay. Because, listen, the reason Jesus is able to forgive us, because we, have, we do have a penalty of our sin. Are you following me, church? There's a, blame, there, there's a responsibility appropriated to us. So Jesus took that upon him which enables him to forgive us the same way. So I'm not saying you say, oh, you know what? Now I understand my dad didn't have his dad growing up, so now I understand not that big of a deal. No, it was a big deal that your dad wasn't there for your birthdays. No, it was a big deal what your sister did to you. But listen, the power and the grace and the forgiveness of our God is greater. Can I get an amen? By his grace... And by his spirit, we can feel what they feel. We can become more tender towards them and still walk in forgiveness. The proverb, Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It's good sense to not be quick to anger, to be slow to anger. And the Bible says it's to his glory. That word glory means a beautiful adornment on your character. Another translation says honorable. The Bible says you are living honorably when you overlook offenses. I was reminded back when I was in high school, I played basketball. I know you can tell by how tall and thin I am. I played basketball. Um, uh, it was amazing. Um, um, but I, I, I was, my, my coach had this drill. I had a phenomenal coach my high school year. My, my senior year. And he had this drill when we go up for layups. He had these two foam pads. And as we went up, he would slam them on our arms. I think he kind of enjoyed it too much. I was like, okay, coach, why don't we switch places? Come on, somebody. Um, I'm still offended. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but here's, here's what he was training us to do. He would slam those, those foam pads on our arms because he was conditioning us to... Not lose our cool while being offended. He was conditioning us to still make the basket while being fouled. Can I tell you what spiritual maturity looks like? Is you spiritually conditioning yourself to overlook offense. Overlooking those comments. Overlooking being left off the party invitation that you thought you should have been invited to. Overlooking the fact that they weren't there when they should have been there. Now listen, there are some offenses too big. There are some significant things, abuse and other things that you can't just overlook. I'm talking about the everyday offenses we all face. It's to your honor to overlook offense. Paul said this in Galatians 1 or 6, verse 1. If someone's caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. 
So Paul was writing to some Galatians who thought they were spiritually superior to some who were caught in sin and offense. And he said, listen, if you think you're so spiritually mature, (laughs) he said, guard your heart from becoming offended and restore them gently. Here's what Paul said. I heard this years ago, and it's always stuck with me. He's, He's saying this, develop thick skin and a soft heart. Thick skin. You're not easily offended. You're not easily riled up. But a soft heart. That you restore people gently, he says. Then he says, this fulfills the law of Christ. What laws are you referring to? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you know how you can love people? Is to have thick skin, not be so easily offended, and have a soft heart. Be gentle with people. I once heard uh, a pastor say that when you, to help you to see people and to treat them gently, is that when you look at them, imagine a sign over their head that says, God's child handle with care. That's the truth, right? And like I said, as a father, I want you to handle my children with care. I believe the same way with our Father in heaven, that we're to be gentle with people, that we're to handle them with care. Don't take offense personally. Hey, before I share point three, I want to share the final clip of the movie today. And this is towards the end of the movie now. Uh, what has happened was Cindy Lou Who, in her efforts, she didn't become offended. She, she made efforts to make peace. And the Grinch's heart softens. In fact, the, his heart actually enlarges. If you watch the movie, it's kind of funny. If you've seen it, he has this moment where he's like, ah! Oh! And they're like, he's like, my heart's growing and his chest is pounding. And his heart is changed because of the kindness and the grace that was displayed. And, uh, and then from that, he uh, has this moment where he comes into town with Cindy Lou Who uh, to make peace. Let's watch the clip. What did he do? He came down and he said, I'm the Grinch who stole Christmas. And I'm sorry. We see Cindy Lou Who's initiation to make peace uh, then calls this sort of chain reaction. So much so that her father, who was kind of down on the Grinch, literally stopped the sleigh. And we see this, this peace being made between the Grinch and all of Whoville. Which brings you to point number three, is that we are called to make peace with everyone. I'm going to fast forward in the life of David and Saul, 2 Samuel 9. Uh, it's a profound chapter. In fact, we could do a whole message on this chapter because Saul and Jonathan, his son, were dead. Uh, They died in war, in battle. And 2 Samuel 9, David was on the throne. And when you were on the throne at this time, uh, the former king's family would often hide out because the new king, oftentimes because the old king's family could be a threat to his kingdom, he would kill them off. So there was, uh, David asked someone in his kingdom, well, who, who is alive from Saul's family? Well, he said, there's one person uh, named Meshivapheth, and he is Saul's grandson, and he lives in a place called Lodabar. And Lodabar means, in Hebrew, no pasture, which no pasture in an agrarian culture means poverty, no resource. Not only that, but Mephibosheth was physically disabled. In that culture, to have a physical disability... You, were, you had no economic or social capital. Not only that, but Mephibosheth's son was a real threat to David's kingdom. 
And what David does is David invites Mephibosheth to his table, to his kingdom, to restore Saul's fortune back to him. What's, what's powerful is in 1 Samuel, Saul invites David to his table to kill him. In 2 Samuel, David invites Mephibosheth to his table to save him. It's actually a type and shadow of what God did for us. That in the same way, he had his, his, his kingdom go and find Mephibosheth. The Bible says this, Mephibosheth sitting down with David. He says, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all of the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. You will always eat at my table. David initiates the peacemaking with his family. Mind you what the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews 12, 14. He says, work at living with peace and peace with everyone. And work at living a holy life. You know what that word everyone means in the Greek? Everyone. I know it's profound. He says, work at living with peace. You know what that tells us? It's going to take work to be at peace with people. But the Bible says do it anyway. Work at living at peace with that coworker who talked behind your back. Work at living with peace with that family member who hurts you. Work at living with peace with your parent who was not there for you. And then he says to live a holy life. The Bible several times in the New Testament, actually connects living righteously and living at peace with people. That the, 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 the overflow of a righteous life in Christ is living at peace with people. To live at peace with everyone. That means every person. The friend who ghosted on you. The ex-spouse who betrayed you. The church member who said something hurtful to you. Even your friend who's a Dallas Cowboys fan. We love Cowboys fans. To live at peace with everyone. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed, which that word blessed means happy. So happy are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. And that culture was a culture of conflict. I would say today, my perception is today, we have a culture where there's lots of division and conflict. Would you agree? You scroll on social media, you see conflict. The news, you see conflict. Maybe this, this, this Christmas when you are at a family get-together, maybe someone will not show up because of conflict. And Jesus said, in a culture of conflict, I have commissioned you and called you to be a peacemaker. Please note this. He didn't say peacekeeper. Anybody else in the room, you're like myself, you're prone to be a peacekeeper? Peacekeeping is not peacemaking. A lot of times peacekeeping is actually a false sense of peace. You don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't want to create any waves. May I submit to you the process of peacemaking oftentimes may cause you to lose your peace at first. It's a process. It takes effort. But you are called to be a peacemaker. Paul said this way, making peace is not being overcome with evil, but overcoming evil with good. 
So we are called to be a peace initiator. Paul said to the Corinthian church, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now reconciliation is a two-way street. It doesn't just take one person, but we are called to be those who initiate peacemaking, initiate reconciliation. We are called the ones to not be caught up with the evil, the offense, but to overcome evil with good. Now listen, this idea of making peace, I could give you multiple applications, and there are. You could initiate a conversation with someone that needs peace. You could do good for someone that you need to be at peace with. But I want to give you one thing to do. It's the first step, but it's honestly perhaps the most powerful one. It's the words of Jesus, my final scripture. He said, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of, of your Father in heaven. He said, pray for those who persecute you. Some of them would actually lose their life at the hands of people who are persecuting them. And he says, pray for them. Reminds me years ago, and I close this story. My uh, talking to Christina about somebody who I was offended with. And she said, well, have you prayed for them? I said, pray for them? I don't want to pray for them. A sign you might be offended is you don't want to pray for them. Come on, somebody. You're like, in the name of Jesus, I bless them. It's like painful. But I did. I blessed this person. I blessed their family. I blessed, because Jesus said, bless those who persecute you. I blessed their health. I blessed their finances. I blessed their year. I blessed their work. I blessed them. I've actually prayed for that person many times. I don't know if my prayer has ever changed them. But do you know who it changed? Me. Here's my presumption. Just my reading of scripture. Perhaps Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you, not because those who persecute you will stop or change, but because it will change your heart. It will change you. I want to encourage you to do that this year. In fact, here's what I want to do when I end the message. I want you to bow your heads with me. We're going to close this message today.